If you love the History Extra podcast and want to help us keep bringing you brilliant episodes, then please share it with a friend or a fellow history fan who you think might enjoy it. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. Before we get started, we want to tell you a bit about the sponsor of this week's History Extra podcast, Warner Hotels. If you're looking to escape to a picturesque corner of the UK for a few days, Warner Hotels has just the thing for you. Each hotel offers everything you could possibly need for the perfect weekend away. From unrivaled leisure facilities and inspiring live entertainment, to delicious dining experiences and plenty of history for you to uncover. If this sounds like your kind of getaway, Warner Hotels is now offering a series of exciting weekend packages in 2024. Each three-night stay is at one of three historic hotels, with dinner, bed and breakfast included, plus a whole itinerary of fascinating talks and Q&As with a selection of BBC history experts, such as Tracy Borman, Susanna Lipscomb and James Holland. So what are you waiting for? Book your break now at warnerhotels.co.uk. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This Father's Day, the Home Depot has same-day delivery on the perfect gift to help dad be everything he can be. Because your dad is more than just a dad. He's groundskeeper of the yard, the perfecter of the patio, and the cleaner of the clippings. Let the Home Depot help power dad's doing with the convenience and gas-like power of Milwaukee cordless outdoor tools. Plus, get up to $150 off select Milwaukee tools. For everything dad is, find the perfect gift at the Home Depot. How doers get more done. Order select and stock items by 4 p.m. subject to availability. Welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine, Britain's best-selling history magazine. I'm Ellie Cawthorn. British forces surrendering in their thousands. Millions of tonnes of shipping sinking to the bottom of the Atlantic. And a German fleet sailing past the Straits of Dover in broad daylight. For Britain, 1942 was a year of many calamities, and for its leader, it was a time of peril. In his new book, the historian Taylor Downing chronicles the events of this year and reveals how close Churchill came to being ousted as Prime Minister. He was joined in conversation by BBC History magazine editor Rob Attar. Your book explores the events of 1942 and is entitled Britain at the Brink, Now, by 1942, Britain had survived the perils of 1940 and gained two powerful new allies in the USA and the USSR. So why then do you feel that the country was at the brink at this point? Many people think that the real 
crisis for Britain in the Second World War, the, the darkest hour, if you like, was 1940. The Battle of France. France falls in a matter of weeks. It, had, you know, it hadn't fallen in the First World War for four and a half years of fighting, but in a matter of six weeks, France falls in 1940. The Battle of Britain is fought, which we know is one of the decisive battles of the Second World War. That's followed by the Blitz for night after night, for week after week, month after month, the Luftwaffe is bombing London and then other cities around the whole of the UK. And most people see this as as the darkest hour. I, in fact, see it in Churchill's own phrase as, as the finest hour of Britain. Although we know there was some panic, although we know local authorities collapsed here and there, um, in the main, it brought people together. And I think it is fair to say there was something resembling a, a blitz spirit that prevailed in 1940. We struggled on, and then in um, in June 1941, Hitler invades the Soviet Union, so the Soviets become an ally, although that's looking a little bit uh, dubious for the first few months. The German advance is so rapid, the collapse in the Soviet Union is so great that it that it looks as though the Soviets might, uh, might, might fall, might be conquered, in which case Hitler would return to attack England again, greatly enhanced, his power greatly enhanced by victory over the Soviet Union. And then on December the 7th, 1941, the Japanese attacked the US Pacific fleet at Pearl Harbor and simultaneously attacked Britain in Malaya, the British Empire in Malaya, with an invasion there. And Britain was finding it hard to, 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 to struggle on militarily and suddenly facing not just the two foes in Europe, a very determined Nazi with its uh, Italian fascist supporters, but now facing a third foe, a militaristic regime in Japan, uh, where its its young men were schooled to, to fight and die for the emperor. Th- this was an impossible combination. Throughout the 30s, Britain had planned for a war maybe against two uh, enemies, either Germany and Japan or Germany and Italy, but not three. And that's why I think it's a long answer to your, to your simple question. I think 1942, Britain was up against three determined foes that it had never really planned or prepared a capability to defend itself against. And that's why I think 42 becomes the what I call the darkest year, the blackest hour, if you like, for Churchill for the whole British people. And actually, one of the kind of nadirs of Britain's war effort occurs quite early, doesn't it, in mid-February with the surrender of Singapore. What made this such a disaster and how much damage did this do to morale back in Britain? OK, so two, two elements there. I mean, Britain was so stretched, Britain's military was so stretched by 1942, I mean, we had an empire behind us. You know, we had Australia, we had New Zealand, we had Canada, we had South Africa, we had India, huge number of Indian troops in the Indian army. But everything was very, very stretched. And in Malaya, the forces there where they hadn't really prepared for a Japanese assault, the forces there had been what the, the word is milked. All the NCOs, the best NCOs and the best young officers had been sent to fight in the Middle East uh, or had been taken out to fight elsewhere. So the troops weren't really prepared for the onslaught that came. As I said, it came simultaneously with the attack on uh, Pearl Harbor on the 7th of December. 
The Japanese, on the other hand, were had prepared for jungle warfare. They had the technology, the light tanks. Uh, they used bicycles as a form of transport to, to get along. They had mobile tactics. The, the imperial forces, Indian and British forces, would, would, would play a very traditional role. They'd build a huge defensive line across a main road. The Japanese would approach this defensive line instead of tackling it head on, would just head off into the jungle, into the swamps around the side, surround the defensive barrier. They would then have to retreat to try and get out before being cut off. And the whole thing sort of tumbled into a sort of chaotic rout. And so Britain uh, didn't have the men, didn't have the technology. The Air Force was very, very weak in the Far East. They were using aircraft that certainly would have been regarded as obsolete had they been flying in Britain or in North Africa. Um, And there were very few of them. So things went from bad to worse very, very quickly. When Singapore falls in the middle of February 1942, it is, I think, without doubt, one of the greatest calamities for Britain in the Second World War. Churchill called it at at the time, or a few days after, called it the greatest defeat of British arms in its history. A garrison uh, or a a defending force of about 85, 90,000 imperial soldiers surrender to 23, 24,000 Japanese. I mean, that's an incredible superiority in strength that collapses. Um, And this left a huge impression really on the whole of Asia. It it was not just a a humiliation for Britons at home, but it was an imperial collapse. It was an imperial disaster. The great fortress of Singapore that had been built up from the 1920s onwards with huge resources going into it to, to represent British power in the Far East collapses so quickly And both at home, I I use in the book a lot of research that I did at Mass Observation, this wonderful archive of material. I know many of your podcasts have referred to Mass Observation in the past. This wonderful record of material. People, the Mass Observers went out recording literally what people said um, verbatim. They, They wrote down verbatim what people were saying. So... There was, for instance, in a, in a, in a, there was an observer in a grocery shop, a corner shop in Dewsbury in Yorkshire, and she records that everybody is talking about the, the, the failure uh, and the humiliation. For Churchill, who sees himself as a great war leader, a great sort of military hero, the, 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 the fact that, that um, this great fortress should surrender sort of on his watch, as it were, uh, is an enormous humiliation. And I think we can see the ripples going out throughout Asian politics. You know, in India, I think there's suddenly a sense that Britain is no longer the great power, the great defender. In Australia, there's a sort of reass- reassessment. There's a feeling in Australia that it was bad British generals, bad British military leadership that had led to the collapse and the surrender at Singapore. And so Australia begins to align itself militarily far more with the United States. Um, And of course, for the poor people, the the civilian population in Malaysia um, and in in, in the city of Singapore, they're faced now with many years, they didn't know this at the time, what was going to happen, but years of a brutal, brutal occupation. So I think I'm pretty well every level, domestic opinion at home, international opinion, uh, and Britain's standing as an imperial power, the surrender in Singapore is an absolute catastrophe and a humiliation. And actually, things get worse for Britain in Asia, don't they? This isn't the only 
situation in that theatre where things things are going badly. I mean, I wonder if you could fill us in on some of the other uh, disasters going on. Yes, well, I mean, immediately, well, in January, the uh, January, February, the Japanese invade Burma, another British imperial um, uh, area. Uh, Rangoon falls in March, so another imperial city falls to the Japanese in March 1942. This then begins a huge retreat right the way uh, through the north of Burma, the overland route to China. Uh, remember, Japan had been at war for China with China for many years and was tying up, the Chinese were tying up dozens and dozens of divisions of Japanese forces. So keeping the war going in China was vital to, to um, Anglo-American interests to keep all these Japanese troops tied down. So the overland route is cut off in Burma. There's what's called the longest retreat in British history. It's about 900 miles. The troops retreat right up to the Indian border. They're described as sort of skinny and ragged and wretched by the time they finally get crossing the jungles and the ravines and the mountains when they finally get to into India. That leaves the Japanese right on the doorstep, right at the, 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 the gateway to India. Now, had India fallen, that would have been, you know, it would have put Singapore in the shade. It would have been the, 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 an even greater imperial catastrophe. There's also the Japanese send a fleet I think it's five aircraft carriers and several battleships into the Bay of Bengal. They start sinking merchant ships. There's a feeling in India that they're preparing for uh, an invasion. There's a panic, a scare in India. So right across the whole of the Far East, the, the, the Japanese blitzkrieg, if you like, is in every way as effective as the German Blitzkrieg had been in, in Northern Europe two years before. And, you know, I have this sort of idea that in, in the map rooms of, of London and Washington, as the, as, as the military try and keep up with the, the Japanese advance, sticking pins in the maps to show the latest place that has fallen, you know, they can barely, you know, as soon as they've stuck one pin in, they've got to move it somewhere else. The speed of the Japanese attack was completely overwhelming. Possibly one of the greatest advances in, in world history. The huge area that the Japanese conquer. They get right down to, they bomb uh, Port Darwin in, in Australia. Um, they get, as I say, to the doorway of, of India. They get right out into the Pacific. They'd already bombed Pearl Harbor in Hawaii. So there's this huge area of the globe sort of suddenly um, is conquered by this apparently unstoppable uh, military force. So the whole of the situation in the Far East changes. And can I just mention there's one other event much, much nearer to home that, that, that really causes concern in Britain, which is that um, in mid-February, in fact, it's a couple of days before the fall of Singapore, three German warships, two battle cruisers um, and, a, and a heavy cruiser, Hitler recalls. They, they, they were undergoing repairs at Brest uh, in, in Brittany, the, the French harbour. And Hitler recalls them and says they must get back to German waters quickly. So they decide they're going to, just going to sail up the channel. Uh, very brazen, very brash. Um, they do this and they sail through the Straits of Dover. Remember, there's only 22 miles between the White Cliffs of Dover, the famous symbol of Britishness, uh, and the French coast. They sail through in broad daylight 
Um, the Navy tries to attack them. The RAF send mission after mission to try and torpedo them. The shore batteries at Dover fire on them. And they don't score a single hit on these German ships that in broad daylight sail through the Straits of Dover and return to Kiel and Wilhelmshaven. And again, when you look at the mass observation comments on this, people around the country are up in arms. How can, you know, the Spanish Armada wasn't able to do this three and a half centuries before. How have the Germans managed it? The Japanese attack our ships uh, and sink them seemingly easily. We attack German ships in broad daylight, only a few miles from the White Cliffs of Dover, and they get past. What you know, what's wrong with our military? Why are things going so wrong? And again, mass observation really echoes this sense of humiliation that is felt very widely across Britain. It's a very bleak, another dark moment. Uh, the press come out. Um, the Daily Mail, which had been very loyal to Churchill up to this point, comes out with a really aggressive attack upon Churchill's leadership. The, the, the Manchester Guardian, as it was then called, says, you know, why can the Japanese sink our ships and we can't sink German ships? Uh, you know, it really, it really is a moment. If Britannia can't rule the waves in the Far East, in the Pacific, that's one thing. But if Britannia can't rule the waves just off the White Cliffs of Dover, that really does seem to be alarming. And a lot of people are perhaps more concerned about that than they are actually about military defeats on the other side of the world. So did did this um, this incident you just described, did this reignite invasion fears? Did people in Britain still feel concern about a possible German attempt to cross the Channel? I think not as intense as there had been two years before in 1940. I think most people could see that the German army was very preoccupied on the Eastern Front, fighting these gargantuan battles on a huge scale um, with the with the Soviet Red Army. There were some people, again, mass observation. There are reports of some people saying, oh, Hitler will be here any time now. You know, we'll all be speaking German and living in the Third Reich in, at any time. But I can't say that from my research, there's much evidence of that. I think it was a general sense that British arms are failing, whether it's the Navy failing to stop ships in the Channel, whether it's the Army failing to stop this incredibly rapid advance in the Far East. Uh, you know, there is a general sense that everywhere Britain fights, we lose, we are defeated. And that was something that was picked up very widely across the country. The press every week is sort of hammering the government, yet another failure, yet another collapse, yet another debacle. Um, and, and clearly that, that got home to people. And that, in a sense, that's the core of my book, this sense that these military failures are then generating a political crisis, a political crisis for Churchill personally, but also for the, for, for, for the whole government and the whole confidence in the British war effort. Still to come on the History Extra podcast. Lots of people saying, oh, he roared wonderfully in 1940, but he's past it now. He's too old. He's, he, he hasn't got a grip on things. You know, it's all going wrong under his leadership. Time for another quick chat about this week's sponsor, Warner Hotels. If you want to get away in 2024, why not book a weekend package at one of Warner's most historic hotels? 
There's Littlecote House, which is a stunning Tudor manor in Hungerford. Studley Castle, a beautiful 19th century building in Warwickshire. Or Home Lacey, a huge Herefordshire mansion that was once visited by Charles I. Whichever location you choose, you'll be able to enjoy a whole weekend of live talks from your favourite historians during your stay. Find out more and book your break now at warnerhotels.co.uk. Now, in another important military disaster that we haven't come to yet is in the North African campaign. And um, in the uh, in June of 1942, Tobruk falls very swiftly and unexpectedly. I wonder if you could tell us about what happened there. And again, how, you know, how did the British public respond to that? Yeah, well, the Eighth Army that was at that point commanded by General Ritchie, Neil Ritchie, had been sent enormous supplies. Um, Churchill recognised that the only land battle that Britain could effectively fight with the Germans and the Italians, with the Axis forces, was in North Africa. You know, we'd been thrown out of uh, Northern Europe in, in 1940, Dunkirk and all of that, all the things that, that, that listeners are familiar with. So we can't confront the um, Germans in Europe. We're, we're too weak at this point to actually launch an invasion. It would have been a disaster had Britain tried a full-scale invasion of northern France. But there is this battle that the Italians had started in North Africa, and then when it had gone ill for them, um, Hitler has sent one of his most daring generals, Rommel, to take command of the Africa Corps, the Panzer Army Africa. Uh, and um, so one of the few areas where there were land battles taking place with Axis forces was North Africa. So Churchill and the government send enormous reinforcements to Egypt. They've got this long journey because the Mediterranean is too dangerous to cross, so they have to go right the way around the Cape of Good Hope, right the way around South Africa and up up the eastern side of Africa. It's a huge, long journey. takes up a massive demand on shipping, but it's given a priority. But every time, well, on many times, when a well-equipped Eighth Army confronts Rommel and the Africa Corps, they are yet again defeated. And this happens in the Battle of Gazala in in May 1942, where Rommel attacks well-defended positions, and it was quite a good strategic defensive line that that Ritchie had had built up. But Rommel, wily, quick to respond, fast to change his plans, basically just out-generals the British. And at the Battle of Gazala, Ritchie is defeated. He orders the army to evacuate to Egypt. So they evacuate east along the coast. They skidaddle as quickly as they possibly can. It was called the Gazala Gallop at the time to get away from, from Gazala to safer ground in Egypt. But he leaves the garrison of Tobruk, which in 1941 had held out. Australian and British troops had held out there for about eight months. So his confidence that a very, very well-supplied, very well-stocked garrison, uh, the old Libyan port town of Tobruk, can hold out and hold Rommel up as he retreats and reorganises in Egypt. Um, But Rommel, again, completely outfaces the uh, Allied defences. He launches a huge air attack on Tobruk. The panzers go in or the mine clearer, the engineers go in to clear the mines and the panzers go in. And in one weekend, again, it's about 33,000 Allied troops surrender to a German force, German-Italian force of roughly half that size. 
and uh, having held out heroically in 1941 for eight months, Tobruk in 1942 surrenders in a weekend. It's that, again, that humiliating, that much of a failure. Churchill is actually in a meeting in the White House when the news comes through. He's with Roosevelt, and he says this is one of the greatest blows that had ever occurred to him in the war. He says, you know, defeat is one thing, disgrace is another. So here's yet another really low point. You know, we've confronted these disasters in the Far East, We've confronted the humiliation of ships, German warships sailing through the channel. And now the one area where we're sort of head-to-head on land battles, yet again, uh, an inferior in terms of numbers, uh, Axis force overwhelms a superior in terms of numbers, Allied force. You know, everywhere you look, there is failure militarily. And Churchill comes up with this phrase, he he, he embarrasses and humiliates his uh, chief of the Imperial General Staff, so General Sir Alan Brooke, by repeatedly saying, haven't you got a single general who can win a battle? Haven't any of them got any ideas? You know, Churchill thrives on the great military traditions of British history. His ancestor, the Duke of Marlborough, about whom he'd written a series of books, had been one of the great heroes of the early 18th century. Um, And here he is, Churchill, presiding over a, a, a government that just sees one military failure after the other. And it really sends him into a despair. He's really very down, very uh, upset, very black, uh, as a consequence of these repeated military failures. And how much uh, political danger was Churchill in at this point? You know, there'd been repeated military failures in the first half of 1942. Was his premiership under threat? Was there another leader waiting in the wings to replace him? There were sort of two levels to to, to the, the political uh, crisis that he faced or the threat to his leadership that he faced. There were two votes in the House of Commons. In January, a vote of no confidence which he won fairly convincingly. Um, But nevertheless, it sort of opened the wound of the general sense of many MPs expressing popular opinion, saying, you know, we don't think we've got the right leadership in place. And then I think a more serious threat came in June, at the end of June, um, very soon after the collapse in Tobruk, where he faces a vote of censure. Um, now, he wins both of these votes. It would be remarkable had he not. Well, he would have almost certainly have had to resign. So he wins them reasonably convincingly. But they both open up this general sense of um, criticism against Churchill. And in a sense, you know, he, he, he's got only himself to blame. When he became prime minister in 1940, he also appointed himself the minister of defence. That This was unprecedented. There'd never been a war leader who was both prime minister in charge of the overall strategic determination of the war effort, um, but also a minister of defence who ultimately had to accept responsibility for sort of military operations wherever they might be, army, navy and air force. And so when everything starts going wrong, you know, there's no one else to blame sort of thing. He really has to accept. And the number of, when you read the Hansard reports of these debates, the number of MPs who are saying, we don't have the right leadership in this country. He's taken on far more than, than, than he can handle. He should at least divest, let's say, the munitions or production. There should be a minister of production. Many people say he shouldn't be minister of defence as well. He needs another man to be 
the minister of defense or uh, you know up, up, upgrade one of his military men why, why does he have to have this role as well and again mass observation reflects this lots of people saying oh he roared wonderfully in 1940 but he's past it now he's too old he's he, he hasn't got a grip on things you know it's all going wrong under his leadership so you know, again, there is this sort of groundswell of opinion reflected in Parliament. But I think the biggest threat of all, you know, actually comes not in these two motions in the House of Commons, but with the emergence of a, of a man who really is uh, a rival to Churchill. His name was Sir Stafford Cripps. He's not a man we most people sort of remember prominently today. But Cripps was the absolute opposite of Churchill. Churchill was a, a bullient, you know, enjoyed champagne with his meals, large man, cigar smoking. Cripps was austere. He was a teetotaler. Uh, he, he, he somehow sort of caught the mood of the nation going through its period of austerity. He was efficient. He was known for his efficiency, for his management capability. And lots of people begin to see Cripps as a very viable alternative leader in the war. Added to this, he had been in Moscow for the first six, seven months after the German invasion. And he very cleverly sort of, today we'd, we'd call it, you know, his special advisors sort of manipulate the media to associate Cripps with great heroic Soviet defence. So whereas Churchill is now associated with all these military failures, Cripps is associated with the, with the great defence by the Soviet people of, of, of their motherland. And um, so he really emerges quite rapidly in the spring of 1942 as an alternative sort of leader in the wings. Now, he doesn't push it. He, Sir Stafford Cripps, doesn't push this. Um, I think it's one of the what-ifs of history, that had he really been determined to take over, to oust Churchill, I think he probably could have manipulated himself into a position where that would have happened. But he, do, he doesn't push it. But there's no, no question. The press say, uh, you know, over and over again, he is the sort of man this country needs to lead. Uh, efficient, professional, good manager, and, and so on. But he doesn't push it. Uh, and... Churchill survives these uh, votes in the House of Commons, and also he survives the the, the rivalry, the competitive uh, appearance, as it were, of Sir Stafford Cripps. Now, one thing that we haven't talked about yet is the Battle of the Atlantic, which, of course, is going on um, throughout this 1942. Till often talked about how how concerned he was about the Battle of the Atlantic. How worried were ordinary Britons about this? So the, the, the Battle of the Atlantic had been going quite well in 1941. Um, the British codebreakers had managed to crack the German naval codes and were, were therefore able to identify where most of the U-boats in the North Atlantic, not all of them, but most of them, were positioned. They hunted in wolf packs, as they were called at the time. They hunted in groups that were thought to be more efficient. And they usually were able to track down where they were and reroute convoys as they passed, as they sailed across the, the North Atlantic, reroute them away from where the, 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 the wolf packs of U-boats were waiting. So in 1941, you know, you could argue that we were almost winning the Battle of the Atlantic, which, which as you say, was a crucial battle for Britain's survival, and Churchill knew this. Britain was a trading nation. We needed not just the arms and um, from 
December 1941 onwards, the men coming from America. But we also needed foodstuffs, we needed chemicals, we needed fuel, we needed all the raw materials to keep the country going. And most of them, with Europe cut off, had to come from North America. So it was an absolutely crucial battle, but we were, you know, things were looking quite good in 1941. And then the Germans changed the enigma system that they use, or all the different forces within the Third Reich had different versions of the Enigma machine. And the Navy, the German Navy, the Kriegsmarine, add another rotor blade to the back of the Enigma. Now, I'm, I'm not a mathematician, and I'm certainly not a code breaker. But, you know, I understand that this adds something like, you know, 26 million extra uh, options to the to, to the code breaking, uh, 26 million extra sort of difficulties to the to the code breaking with this extra rotor blade. And so Bletchley Park, the famous Bletchley Park, where the where Turing and the code breakers are based, basically goes black at the beginning of 1942. They suddenly lose their ability to understand where the U-boats are. This begins a completely new phase in the Battle of the Atlantic. Hundreds of ships, literally hundreds of ships, millions of tons of ships uh, are then sunk by the U-boats in the first months of 1942. And uh, that's not only a dreadful loss of life for the merchant sailors involved, but it means that literally millions of tons of vital supplies end up at the bottom of the Atlantic. Uh, And you're absolutely right in saying that everything else that, that goes on in that troublesome year has to be set against the context of these huge losses at sea. Now, to answer the second part of your question, how 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 concerned were people by this? The scale of the losses were kept secret. At the beginning of the war, the Admiralty had announced the loss of this ship or that ship or whatever, but they stopped doing that. There were just too many um, to, uh, to to admit the, the scale of the losses in 1942. And it was, I think, probably rightly thought that there would be a panic had, had the scale of the losses been known. Churchill knew and the other war leaders knew. And there's a very moving account by Churchill's doctor who comes across Churchill at one point in the map room, staring at the map, a map of the Atlantic, the North Atlantic, and all these convoys trying to cross. And Churchill is really so upset. And the doctor says that you know, he always kept that month's shipping losses in his mind. It was always he was always reflecting on the scale of these losses and what might that mean that this was a way that Britain really could be brought to 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 defeat effectively if we'd been starved, uh, if the nation had been starved. We never came to that as as we know, but it was a big threat in 1942. So. There isn't the widespread panic that you might expect because people simply didn't know. I think in the sort of port towns, there was you couldn't escape the stories. The survivors of, of a convoy would come in and say, you know, we lost four or five ships and, in this last convoy, and that would sort of spread around the town very quickly. Rumours like that would spread very quickly and possibly even get exaggerated. So there were pockets of... Uh, the, the country where there was real concern, but but it was kept, the lid on it was kept pretty much. So it was only Churchill and the other war leaders who who really had an understanding of the scale of the problem that, that, that worried them. So in the middle of 1942, as you've mentioned, Churchill's in, in real trouble and, and the British government. How important do you think victory at El Alamein in November was to turning both Britain's fortunes around and Churchill's? Well, it was the the turning point, militarily and indeed politically. I mean, in a democracy, 
military failure is one of the events that creates political crisis. In a tyranny or in a dictatorship in an authoritarian regime, you can disguise these things as the Germans did. They never really admitted the scale of defeats that that occurred. But Britain wasn't that sort of country. It was a democracy. The BBC were reporting reasonably accurately, even if they didn't know the scale of the loss of ships at sea and those things. You know, it was reporting reasonably accurately what was happening. And so military failures, failures on the battlefield led to this political crisis that we've been talking about. What does a a leader need in a democratic state to survive? He or she needs victory. And of course, that victory finally comes, as you say, in the Battle of El Alamein, end of October, beginning of November 1942. It's, it's clear amongst Churchill's entourage that in anticipating that battle, and Churchill is very nervous, very anxious, he knows that the new commander of the 8th Army, German, uh, G- General Bernard Montgomery, is preparing his troops for an offensive. We know that the Germans are absolutely the end of a very long supply lines and their sh- the supply ships are being sunk in the Mediterranean. So he sort of knows theoretically that there is an overwhelming advantage that the 8th Army has. But he's thought that before it's been felt that victory is certain. So he's extremely anxious that it might yet go wrong all over again and that General Montgomery might prove as fickle or, or, or as, as much of a failure as his predecessors had. So he's very anxious in September and October, and we know that the sort of coterie around him, both Bernard Bracken, a big supporter of him, and Anthony Eden, his deputy, both are saying, if we lose this battle, it's the end of Churchill. He will have to go. Somebody else will replace him. But of course, Bernard Montgomery doesn't lose that battle. The beginning of the Monty legend. There is a a great triumph in uh, El Alamein. On the 4th of November, Churchill receives the message that he so long awaited from the CNC Middle East Command, who sends the cable. uh, Our troops have broken through. uh, The German army in El Alamein has been defeated and is on the retreat. And this is the message that Churchill is longing for. Around the country, there's still suspicion, you know, well, we've been here before, you know, Rommel will pull something, the rabbit out the hat, you know, somehow he'll twist it around and this will prove to be yet another defeat in the long run. But a few days later, four days later, I think it is, after after Churchill receives this message, um, American troops start landing in northwest Africa, they land in Casablanca at Oran and Algiers. Uh, very quickly, uh, create a beach, create a base there, and a little bit more slowly. Then, anyway, start moving east towards Tunisia. So we've got the Eighth Army rolling up the uh, Africa Corps from Egypt through Libya, one after another. The places that have been fought over for months and months and months surrender. Tobruk is recaptured. Benghazi is recaptured. And, and so on, and the Americans are moving in from the other side of, the, the, of North Africa. So at last, it feels as though this victory is secure, that Rommel isn't going to suddenly pull something out of the hat and, and, and launch another attack upon the Eighth Army. And Churchill orders that the church bells should be rung, this very sort of symbolic moment. In 1940, that would have meant invasion. 
if the church bells were rung, that was a symbol that the Germans had landed. In 1942, it means a great victory has been won. Uh, And almost overnight, certainly within a few weeks, Churchill's political standing is restored. By Christmas of uh, 1942, by the end of the year, there's a Gallup poll that shows support for him is pretty much back where it was, um, you know, two years before. All the failures, all the humiliations, all the disasters of 1942 now slowly recede into the background. Uh, And military victory brings a relief to the political crisis and really, this is this is now for the rest of the the war that goes on, as we all know, for you know two and a half years. Um, Churchill becomes the sort of war leader that that we all know about, the man who leads the nation to to final victory. But the point of my book and the story I'm telling is that there is this very dark moment, the nine months, the first nine ten months of 1942, which is usually forgotten by most people. But it's that that period that sees Churchill's darkest hour, nearly sees him unseated. And, um, you know, had the El Alamein been a failure, I think Churchill would have gone down in history as a, as a, as a you know, the man who enabled us to get through 1940, but who then becomes a failed military leader. All of that is turned by this military victory. And, of course, in the broader context, the end of 1942, the beginning of 1943, sees the Battle of Stalingrad, sees the Red Army capturing the whole of von Paulus's Sixth Army. I think 130,000 German troops are captured. Uh, so on the bigger picture as well, it's this roughly the same period, end of 42, beginning of 43, the pendulum swinging. Uh, the Americans are doing well in the Pacific. Um, they've already defeated the Japanese Navy uh, earlier in the year at the Battle of Midway. Now land troops are doing better and better in Guadalcanal. So, you know, suddenly it looks as though we're going in the right direction. But it hadn't looked that way for so much of 1942. And so when you're looking at the mass observation reports and things like that for Christmas, New Year, the end of 1942, are you seeing a real change in mood, a, a more positive atmosphere among Britons? Yes, absolutely, definitely. There's a positive attitude amongst Britons, but there's another element to this as well, which is quite intriguing, which is that in December 1942, the, uh, the, 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 the great report, the Beveridge Report, that talks about what sort of society uh, Britain should be after the war. The Beveridge Report is published. It's a, it's a pretty thick, you know, 100-page government paper, but it sells 100,000 copies. Um, and there are shorter versions that, that are even more popular, little sort of penguin summaries, um, paperback summaries that are, that, are, that are even more popular. And I think this captures a mood that the British people by this point are beginning to say, so what is it we're fighting for? What sort of society do we want to build out of all the suffering, all the loss, the destruction of cities through bombing, you know, will need to be rebuilt. Um, Society has shown that people can work together. There's a collectivist spirit that has come out through the war. And people are beginning to, to think if it's just a matter of time until 
victory ultimately comes. It'll be a long, slow road, but it's it's out there somewhere. What sort of society should we be building? What is the victory for? And Churchill is not part of this. Churchill won't have it. Churchill says, "I'm I'm here to lead the war effort. I'm only concerned with victory over fascism in Europe and militarism in the Far East. This is what my my task is." And so he completely isolates, separates himself from what becomes an ongoing debate about what is victory for. Victory for Churchill is a military victory. Victory for the British people becomes increasingly a broader concept of what society, as I say, are we building? How should the state function in the post-war period? Um, and ultimately, of course, we, we know what happens. In 1945, after the great military victory in the defeat of fascism in Europe, the surrender of Germany and uh, Italy had already surrendered. You know, what happens? The great war leader is voted out of office um, in, in, a, in, a, in a decision, the landslide victory for the, um, for the Labour Party that, that many people can't understand. I think it's absolutely understandable. I have no difficulty seeing why people thought Churchill was OK as a war leader, but he wasn't the man to build the new society. So this question, what is victory for, is, a, is an interesting one that emerges uh, at the very end of the year. So, yes, militarily, you know, Churchill's the war leader, um, but he's still out of tune with a lot of thinking in a lot of the country. That was Taylor Downing. His book, 1942, Britain at the Brink, is out now, published by Little Brown. And you can read a piece by Taylor on Britain in 1942 in the April issue of BBC History magazine. That's on sale in a few days' time and will also include articles on Mary Seacole, Napoleon and England after the Civil War. Thanks for listening. This podcast was produced by Ben Hewitt, Jack Bateman and Brittany Colley. Before you go, one final word about this week's sponsor, Warner Hotels. If you fancy a break in 2024, you can now choose from three fantastic weekend packages at some of the most historic Warner Hotels. For instance, Littlecoat House is set in a stunning location in Hungerford, which has played host to Romans, a civil war army and the planning of the D-Day landings. Meanwhile, Studley Castle in Warwickshire was used as a training camp for the Women's Land Army during the World Wars. Find out more and book your break now at warnerhotels.co.uk.